Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years' experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, BC, dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium BC fly-in fly fishing trip. Welcome to the Littoral Zone podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rowley. The Littoral Zone, or shoal area of the lake, is the place where the majority of the action takes place. My podcast is intended to do the same, put you where the action is to help you improve your stillwater fly fishing. On each broadcast, I, along with guests from all over the world, will be providing you with information, tips and tricks, flies, presentation techniques, along with some different lakes to explore. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please feel free to email me with your Stillwater-related fly fishing questions and comments. I do my best to answer as many as we can prior to each episode, just before the main content. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's show. This is Dave, your Wet Fly Swing podcast host, Phil Roy, back here today for another huge episode of the Littoral Zone This is our chance to break down stillwater fishing from one of the best so you have the tools you need for success this season. Before we get started, quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's subscription fly box. Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly tie materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. I'm pleased to have Devin Olson join us on today's show. Devin is a competitive fly fisher and a current member of Team USA. He's probably best known for his euronymphing skills. Euronymphing is a deadly method for targeting trout in rivers and streams, something I love to do whenever I can. Devin is also committed to fly fishing education, providing video tips through his active YouTube channel and a series of instructional videos with good friend and fellow teammate Lance Egan. Devin's first book, Tactical Fly Fishing, is a must-read for anyone wishing to learn more about Euronymphing. As a member of Team USA, Devon has traveled all over the world to participate in several championships. Fly fishing competitions don't just take place on moving water. They are typically a balance of moving and stillwater venues. Like myself, Devon is an ardent stillwater fly fisher. He loves to get out on his local waters to maintain and hone his competitive stillwater skills whenever he can. Today, Devin and I will discuss the competitive techniques he has learned and used worldwide and how they can be used and applied to everyday stillwater fly fishing. This will be a packed episode full of information you can apply to your stillwater fly fishing too. Before we get started with today's podcast, we've got a couple of things to go over. A a new book I want to let you all know about and a question I received from the Understanding or rather Making Sense of Stillwater Fly Lines podcast, the two-episode podcast I recently put out, and it's in regards to uh, 
intermediate lines, and particularly clear intermediate lines. Uh, Scott McClellan is uh, going fishing up in the Caribou region of British Columbia, and he's going to be fishing one of my favorite lakes, Sheridan Lake, and some of the great lakes around that area, Highway 24, better known in that region as the Fishing Highway. And Sheridan is crystal clear water. So he was asking about uh, my thoughts on choosing some intermediate lines he'd like to get. He uh, already has a sinking line. He's got one of the real lines, real fathom lines with a hang marker that he really likes. And was asking about what my thoughts are on the uh, clear intermediates. Um, because, again, the presentation environment around Sheridan, like many clear lakes, is demanding. So there's two sort of clear lines that I have. I have a Camel Lux, which is a, a clear camel line. It has sort of, I wouldn't say variegated markings, but kind of a patchy look to it. And this line sinks at about one and a half inch per second. And then I have the Aqualux 2, uh, another clear intermediate line that sinks at two inches per second. And in many line manufacturers, this is often the case. You'll get fly lines or clear intermediate lines, one or two in their range that sink at different rates. A camo type line, I would probably use more on a cloudy day where the clouds are creating shadow on the bottom and uh, your fly line is going to blend in with that environment better with a Camelux or Camelite type line. If it's really crystal clear and uh, sort of a calm day, no clouds, then I might go to something of a more true traditional clear intermediate line that that sunlight can pass through. Again, I think I mentioned it in my um, podcast, my uh, uh, those fly line podcasts about not always necessarily subscribing to the stealth application. I'm just not sure the fish, trout in particular, have the mental math to do what appears to be a great looking food source to eat a clear spot and then a line uh, and making that connection that that could be bad for them. But what I am concerned about in clear conditions, shallow water, uh, sunny day is line shadow. So when what I mean by that is when you cast out in that sinking line or your floating line, is on the surface and you're moving it back towards you through your retrieve, the sunlight obviously passing down on it creates a shadow on the crystal clear, through the crystal clear water onto the bottom. And that can, when it moves, that can alert fish. And fish are very spooky about movement um, because that signifies danger. So again, in those situations, a bit of an overcast day or perhaps a broken clouds kind of day where there's shadows, natural shadows around, then the Camelux might be a good choice in that situation. On a bright, clear, blue banner, no clouds day, I might lean towards a true traditional clear intermediate that the light can pass through. Again, being sensitive to whatever line I choose is line shadow. And again, my presentation choice would also depend on the sink rate I'm hoping to uh, need to be successful. So if one line sinks slower than the other and I'm moving my fly slowly, I might opt for that line just based on that factor alone, the retrieve speed in its relation to uh, how fast I'm moving, uh, sorry, the food source I'm imitating, the retrieve speed and the depth of water I'm fishing. So hopefully that all makes sense, but a great question. And thanks to Scott for reaching out to me. The other thing I wanted to let you know is I have a new book out entitled Stillwater Flies with Phil Rowley and Friends. This book is a compilation of the stillwater-focused patterns that I have featured in my fly tying column I've been writing for BC Outdoors magazine for over 17 years now. BC Outdoors is a uh, BC-based magazine, as the name would suggest, but it has a wide circulation not only in British Columbia, but in the Pacific Northwest as well. So I know a lot of my American friends love to come up into British Columbia and uh, fish this uh, region's the lakes there. It's just world famous for its stillwater destinations. And this pattern book would be a great help for you there. But these patterns also would be a great help anywhere in North America. 
So over the 17 years, the premise of this article was literally to focus on a specific fly pattern, a tying technique, a material, and the fly pattern selected for the column was an illustration of uh, mastering that particular technique, those materials, or the pattern if you wanted to add it to your fly box. The book itself is uh, about nine inches tall and about six and a half inches wide. It's got 154 pages in it, over 35 patterns complete with full color step-by-step covering a wide range of the prey sources trout feed upon in lakes, including chronomids, scuds, damselflies, leeches, dragonflies, mayflies, particularly calabatus, water boatmen. And I've also got a section dedicated to some of the Stillwater attractor patterns I featured there. So, great little book if you want to pick it up. The best place to get it is through mine and Brian Chan's online Stillwater Fly Fishing Store, stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes for this podcast. But if you're looking for a new book or want to get it uh, for a friend, um, consider picking it up. The cost of the book is $29.95 Canadian. And every book like uh, this book and like every other book on our site that Brian and I sell always comes autographed. So check it out, stillwaterflyfishingstore.com, and uh, pick up a copy today. I think you'll enjoy it. So let's get on with our podcast, and let's talk to Devin. Okay, let's jump into this one with Phil and see some magic and a potential mic drop. Here we go. Hi, Devin. Thanks for joining me on on my podcast today. It's uh, great to see and hear from you again. How are things been? Oh, things have been good. Yeah, uh, thankfully just got off a nice long backpacking trip. So lots of fishing in the river, you know, mirror, a couple days to catch up and hopefully back on the water uh, at least in another two or three days. That's good. So I guess... I know of you. Many people I speak to know of Devin Olson and your impact on the fly fishing community, and especially in neuronymphing. But for those that perhaps don't, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to be where you are today, and perhaps with a little accent on the uh, competitive side of fly fishing that you're known for. Sure. Well, uh, I grew up sort of with the fishing rod in my hands. My parents have a picture back when I was like 18 months old with me holding up a fish (laughs) that... Uh, I'd at least helped reel in, I think. I'm, obviously, I hadn't uh, gotten the whole job done, but there was a smiling toddler with a fish involved. And so, you know, it's been kind of a family affair uh, ever since I was a little kid. And I started fly fishing pretty much as soon as I could cast reasonably well because uh, I just was watching Dad out there and thinking that looked a lot more fun than sitting on the bank, you know, chucking cheese and watching it. Uh, line for uh, the fish to take my worm or my power bait, you know. Uh, so I started fly fishing, I think, fairly seriously. You know, by the time I was 10 or 11 was when I really kind of got into it. I, I caught fish on the fly rod before that, but that's when I really started to make the full switch. And it's just been sort of a lifelong pursuit ever since. I started competing. Uh, I did my first competition, I think, when I was 19, back when there was a competition called the Fly Fishing Masters. It was actually a You know, people think of Survivor as the original reality TV show, but this is probably right around that time. (laughs) It was the original reality TV fly fishing competition that they had on the Outdoor Life Network way back when. So I fished in that one, and then a couple years later, I started working in a fly shop with a couple of members of Fly Fishing Team USA, uh, Lance Egan and Ryan Barnes. And so they got me interested in trying to compete for the national team based on, on the international level. And yeah, I've been uh, doing that ever since. I made the Fly Fiction Team USA that next year in 2006. 
and I've worked my way up ever since. Just about to head off to Slovakia for the World Fly Fishing Championships here in about three weeks, I think. Yeah, early September. And that'll be, I'd have to go back and count, but I think it's my 13th World Championship. Well, so you've, you've seen a fair bit of the world then, which is a benefit unto itself. They truly have, yeah. And, and really, in recent years, I, that was about the only way I had done most of my world travel was through those competitions. So, but I'm also a former fisheries biologist, so I spent a fair bit of time in that world. I, I was either in biology or, or as a biologist for about seven years. Or I started uh, an online fly shop called Tactical Fly Fisher. And so my day job is kind of running that, but also I spend a lot of time trading on the water and keeping myself fit to make sure that I'm ready to go for, for competitions as well. Yeah, it's a side note. You do like your, you're a very fit person. I know you do a lot of competitive cycling. You just no, told no. me about the hike you just went on just to catch some uh, cutthroat or a beautiful remote destination. So. That's important. It's in your DNA, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's certainly something I love, yeah. Oh, and nice. I do love that feeling of being fit, and it makes fishing a lot easier, too, <laughs> especially at least when you're crashing down rivers. <laughs> oh, from my perspective, you know, getting a, I'm a little older than you, so, yeah, it's trying to stay fit because you realize at some point in your life that uh, you got to take care of yourself a little better and <laughs> just to be able to do it, to get out there, even mm -hmm. if it's exactly. uh, hiking up and down a river or launching a boat off a trailer or picking up motors and batteries and everything else so so the competition i guess i'll speak to that because it's very popular in europe isn't it yeah competitive fishing is, is part of the culture it's widely accepted i believe not always the case in north america though it seems to be gaining popularity here more and more each year but there's always those critics that uh, you know claim they like to fly fish to get away from the competitive aspects of life but uh we get many benefits, don't we, from competitive angling and the impacts it has on us as everybody else who just likes to fish recreationally, we'll call it, not in a competitive environment. Yeah, I think it's the most people, you know, really just don't have any idea of the history of competitions and, and what they might be holding in their hand as a, a deep tie to, frankly, what has come out of, of competitions. So, uh, I mean, there's plenty of gear aspects that competitions have really changed since the the 90s i mean all of the the competition specific year that we have now that a lot of people don't realize started there you know bead heads for example that we were talking about beforehand really unique rods that are built for very specific purposes that have now become mainstream especially on the river side there's plenty of eurodiving equipment that's come out of it that has now become mainstream and just lots of developments there that have made anglers more successful that they may have no idea you know came from the competitive world but it's happened on the lake scene too i mean um you know i don't know what your audience spread is but the lake fishing side of competitive fly fishing really has been small and kind of niche in, in north america till now but it's absolutely huge and especially in the uk i mean they've had competitions there for decades and decades and decades and it's been a very core part of the development of fly fishing there and many of the wide range of fly lines and unique flies and presentations and styles of fishing and everything all of that really has been at least honed in the competitive side of fishing there and a lot of the people who don't compete still benefit from having those gear choices and also the the techniques that have been proven to be effective you know that you're able to learn them 
because competitors have been out there perfecting them. Yeah. And we're all competitive. Let's be honest. If a couple of drinks or a dinner depends on your success or or lack of success, <laughs> we step up to the plate, don't we? Don't we? So, And we are getting yeah. better at it in North America because I know that uh, last year, 2022, the World Masters crown went to the U.S. And recently the youth uh, won the World Championships too and also placing in the medals, right? Because it's an Olympic system. There's no bass boat or gobs of cash at the end of the rainbow, is there? As much as maybe I wish that was the case, uh, maybe I could have made a direct living off of competition in the past, but no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had some good success over the years. I mean, uh, our team, we, so there's three divisions that just to make it clear for everybody, there's the youth division, which, you know, the, the 18 and unders, there's what they call the senior division, which is actually just the 18 to the fifties, kind of the adult division. And then they're in the master division, which is the 50s and older. So yeah, you know, our team, this senior team, we, we have a, a long history, well, not a very long history, but a kind of a recent history since about 2014, 2015 of some pretty good success. We got our first team medal in, in 2015 uh, at Bosnia, where our team got the silver that year. I actually was able to get the bronze individual medal that year. So that was a big honor. The next year, when the championships came to America, uh, our team got the bronze as well. And Elena Segan, my teammate, got the bronze. But we have actually the first youth world fly fishing championship all over the back in the late 90s. I, I don't remember the exact year. I'd have to talk to Norman, but Norman McTyma, former teammate of mine, he he uh, was the first youth world fly fishing champion. So that was pretty cool. And the youth team has had some some spurts of success over over the years and just came back from the world championship in Bosley with both the uh, first and second place individually and a team goal. And uh, yeah, like he said, the master championship last year, Brett Bishop, he won the world championship individually and then our team got the gold. And uh, so, yeah, it's been, uh, we've had some good success. And actually for the Canucks out there, you guys have the, the, the masters and the ladies championships being hosted in BC this year and, September, so. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And I've met a lot of good friends, people like yourself, Brett, you mentioned, Lance, uh, Pete Erickson. You know, I met a lot of those guys uh, years ago. Jack Dennis invited me down to Durango, Colorado. Were you there? I then? was there too. Oh, yeah, you can't. I, I can't there. remember. <laughs> I was just overwhelmed by the location. It was a pretty tough place to wet a line. It was those private ponds and just spectacular setting and kind of luxurious accommodations. It was. Uh, uh, it was a lot of fun, and it's that's the other side I think to competitive uh, fly fishing. People don't think about is the the camaraderie and the friendships that develop not only amongst your teammates but amongst your fellow competitors. Yeah, I get frankly that's that's a a big part of what keeps people going back. Many of my best friends um, that I have internationally, they all come from competition scene, and I have friends from all sorts of countries that I never would have had a chance to meet people from. And, you know, some of them have come and fish with me. I've hosted a few uh, European guys, like former world champs that I've gotten a chance to fish with on some of my hell water. And then I've gone and fished with some of them uh, in, in Spain and elsewhere. I mean, it's been a really big honor and to both not only get to learn from them, but just be friends with them. And, and so we're pretty much like my brothers these days, you know, um, we still keep in touch almost weekly and, and it's been a really rewarding part of it. And also your teammates too. I mean, a lot of my lifelong friends have come from the team and 
and more than just you know fishing friends, um, but actually real friends. So again, you know, my podcast is still water focused, so people may be wondering where we're going with this, but yeah. obviously, as you know, in most competitions, both locally, regionally, nationally, internationally, there is a still water component to those competitions. There's usually typically one or two lake venues mixed in with the river venues as well. So there's a lot to be learned on fly fishing lakes through competitions, right? And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, about how you apply the techniques, uh, the gear, the setups, your leaders, your fly choices, your presentation techniques, how you adapt those to sort of how the recreational angler can use those. Because you, still being an active competitor, still fish in that competitive vein to keep your skills at the peak uh, level and just hoping we can sort of impress upon uh, my listeners as to how th- what you do every day when you're out on a lake can uh, improve their sort of everyday recreational fishing. What are some of the tricks and techniques and gear um, that they can do that we can apply to them? Yeah, so it's interesting. I grew up actually doing quite a bit of stillwater fishing. My dad and a lot of his friends, they were kind of floated to junkies. And so a lot of my early days learning to, to fly fish were it was done on a lake. So I've loved, you know, flat fishing lakes for a long time, but I very much grew up in what I would call the North American school or back then it was more like the Denny Rickards school of fly fishing, you know, his first book kind of was how that was what I read to teach me how to, to fly fish lakes other than what I was watching my, my dad fishing, um, and his friends. And so, oh, you know, that style was very much, uh, you know, a slow paced, like, trying to be relatively imitative with with your approach and casting and retreating on the way to flies on intermediate lines a lot and you know really slow recitations kind of gradual countdowns this and that uh and then it, there's kind of been weaved in sort of a the chronomid uh fishing from especially you and brian uh, both with indicator rigs and or without but also still more of an imitative you know match the hatch type focus and some of that plays in on the, the competition scene as well. But I think what uh, really has been most different uh, about my exposure to competitive style of fishing is there's, if nothing else, there's a lot more reaction bite um, approaches to what we do because it's we're usually fishing lock style, at least if we're doing it from boats, where... You're always drifting in the boat. So you can't park up an anchor in a single spot and just pound the, the same thing repeatedly over and over. You're drifting. You're having to cover new water and, and constantly moving in the boat. And so a lot of times you are covering new fish all the time. So it's I think about it more as almost like drifting down the river and pounding the banks, you know, mm-hmm. catching fish with streamers. Your approach often has to be a little bit different when you're constantly covering new water. Instead of sitting... At one spot, I'm trying to convince fish that may be swimming by that your flies are perfectly hatching in Corona and people that are you know coming up to the surface are just sitting there static. Um, instead, if, if you've got a good wave and you're drifting pretty quick, you're trying to get the most aggressive fish out of the ones that you may be drifting by and convince them to to hear your flies with a reaction bite. So there's lots of fast retrieves, lots of... Um, Kind of flashy uh, lure style patterns, you know, buggers and other streamers that have lots of flash incorporated or blobs or, you know, eye catching patterns. Mm-hmm. And you're usually teaming them up with maybe some more subtle patterns. 
and you may be making casts and then trying to find exactly what you know part of the column the fisher inch just like any other still water method but then lots of quick retrieves to bring fish to the flies and then you're mixing it in posits or other uh, strategies like that to actually get the fish to commit if they're not really eating them on a rip or a roly poly or you know whatever or you're getting them on the hang right at the end of the retreat so you've brought them to the rig and they may have even followed that rig for your entire retreat and then you finally convince them to eat at the boat when you lift the flies up and stall them for a second and hopefully convince them that you know the the flies are something they need to eat and they're getting away so i'd say it's a faster paced style of fishing overall at least when the fishing is good or when um when you're getting those those fish that you're covering that haven't been hit real hard yet but the interesting part is a lot of times that's how early sessions start uh when, when the fish haven't abounded as much but you'd be surprised if you get you know 15 almost 20 boats a lot of times at a, a world championship out fishing a relatively small lake that might work for the, the first couple of, of sessions but suddenly the reaction bite is no reaction after a while yeah no i remember that i haven't had the competitive experience you have but in 2007 i participated in the canadian championships and i always joke because we actually finished first and won the gold and i retired on top kind of thing because there's nowhere else to go but down but early in the you know the reaction bite the, the aggressive presentations tended to work best and then when you and i remember one lake crystal clear water that made it challenging and then i was on the last session and i think i got two fish and i thought geez that's not as good as i hope but most people blanked on that session because it was they had just shut down and weren't very cooperative anymore and they've uh -huh. just seen an awful lot of stuff because everybody's kind of drifting the same places doing the same things and they get gets an i don't think they, they get cagey yeah they get a little maybe they're not smart enough or intelligent enough to know that but something's just not right so they're they're being a little different and i think that's when you know, when people ask me, and I'm sure you get the same about competitive fishing and the difference in the whole lock style, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little more detail in a minute. But for most anglers that, you know, you talked about Danny Rickard's style that sort of paddle along the edges and work those shallow, you know, productive shoal yeah. areas, or as we do out west, the chronomet thing, you anchor up, you stake your spot, and you fish those flies painstakingly slow or static, either with or without indicators or a variety of other methods. To drift and fish lock style, especially in North America, is quite a different approach to it, isn't it? Because I know it's very popular in England and Europe. That's really the only way. Mm -hmm. I think John Horsey, who's we both of us know, is a very famous competitive. He he said amateurs anchor, and I went, well, I'm not so sure. I totally agree with that, but it is different, right? So uh, and and, get, and that's one of the techniques I think that we can talk about today is that whole lock style and how it's such. You know, if if your traditional methods aren't working, the sort of paddling and pounding the banks kind of approach or sitting up anchored lock style is an excellent way to go to cover water because the proponents are what cover water expose your fly to more fish and because of the way you're present presenting you're not trolling you the flies precede you the fish isn't going to get spooked by you driving over them first when you're trolling which i always tease is more fishing with a fly than fly fishing <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. might stir a little angst amongst some of my listeners but Anyway, it's different, and that's a, an adjustment I think a lot of people have to make, but adding that lock-style technique to your repertoire is really, really valuable, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I guess let's just back up for a second yeah. and talk about the basics of it. So yeah. um, 
back to that, you know, North American style, what I typically see out on on most of the lakes that I fish for people who are out in their float tubes or their pontoon boats or, you know, little uh, motorboats or whatever, a lot of times you're going to see one or two approaches. They're either anchored up and they're fishing indicators static or they tend to troll the around, stick around, whatever you want to call it, you know, and just kind of troll their their flies behind on on some sort of sinking line. Occasionally, you might actually see someone casting or retrieving, but that's almost like the exception that rather than the rule from what I see on a lot of lakes. So Blackstock was the exact opposite of that trolling around and turning around type of approach. Instead, you're drifting broadside to the wind. So your boat is basically perpendicular to the direction of the wind. And then most of the time in North America, because we often, well, we don't have boats that are specifically designed for, nope. for rock style. Yeah. In the UK and Europe, they'll have what they kind of call clinker style boats, which are uniquely shaped boats that actually penetrate the water pretty deeply. They're narrow and they have this, a little bit of a rocker shape to them, but the main feature to them is their hole penetrates quite deep for the amount of surface area that the boat has. So when they get broadside to a wind, their boat actually digs in a little bit into the water and pushes a lot of water when the boat is sideways. And so they can be out in a pretty heavy wind and still not move that fast. Whereas most of our boats here, especially if you're in a slap bottom pram or a drift boat or something like that, it's going to slide if you get it sideways yeah. in the wind, right? And so... We normally use what's called the drove, and the, and they do you know a lot um, in Europe as well. But in some places like in Ireland and Scotland, that's it's very frowned upon to have to use a drug. Yeah, I've I've heard that. That's true. I've heard about like the Scots are like if you throw out a drogue, yeah, you're, yeah, it's totally you're that not like that is bad or yeah, yeah, if you're on on those locks there, yeah, so. The drogues really, I think, are more popular more on the, like the, the Midlands reservoirs and the, and the English part mm-hmm. of the lock style scene. And that, of course, kind of got transferred to everywhere else. Like it's quite, uh, John Orsi did some, some schools down in Australia back in the day. So lock style kind of went there with drogues uh, after he followed. And then we kind of picked it up after learning back in the early 2000s when we were getting our heads smashed in at, you know, <laughs> at the world championships by all these dudes. Oh, we might need to actually learn how to do this, you know? Yeah. So I taught myself the lock style fish right out of the get-go when I was first kind of getting going in the inter- international scene. But that drogue is basically an underwater parachute that, and it literally looks like a parachute. Yep. A, a rectangle of fabric that connects to the gulls of your boat and it slows you down uh, in the wind. And so you can be in a pretty stiff wind and still the boat's just kind of crawling along a few bunches at a ton. Um, so you're constantly moving, but then you're also casting downwind. So you're not, you know, you're not casting behind the boat and then trolling. You're actually casting out ahead of the boat and then retrieving back, back into your drift. So uh, the main difference there is, yes, you are casting to fish that haven't seen the boat yet, but also you're retrieving a little bit of slack with whatever strip or hand twist or whatever type of retrieve that you're doing, part of that retrieve is just retrieving the slack that's building up as your boat drifts pretty much towards your flies. Um, so I think what kind of one of the main issues I had when I first got started rock styling, I think 
especially in, uh, anyone from that slow paddling around, casting the intermediate line and, you know, crawling stuff back. One of the things you're going to struggle with is that you end up needing to retrieve quite a bit faster than you think you do simply because you've got to account for that slack that's building up or was it. But also as I gotten more and more adept at it, you know, I started to realize that the fish will, I'd been taught my whole life that fish weren't going to chase this bugger down, you know, that I had on the end of my line and I had to draw because they just weren't going to put out the energy to go chase it down. It wouldn't look real then, right? That's not a natural retreat. Well, guess what? Whether it's natural or no, fish absolutely will light up flies that are zipping by. Yeah. They will light them up. So it took me, I would say probably a, almost a full year. One of the main things that I learned was just how different I had to be about my retreat speed once I started rock style fishing compared to the style that I had grown up doing. And and you can still fish flies slow and and I mean, I still fish lots of midges from the boat. I still, you know, well, basically static fish coronavids from a drifting boat. You're just basically retrieving line that's matching your drift speed. You can still do that type of stuff, but there's also all these reactionary type bite methods where you've got a, you know, a couple of flies and you're zipping them along and really catching a lot of fish's attention. And so I think the benefits to lock style is that yes, you are fishing out ahead of the boat. You're not drifting over fish. So the fish that you're fishing, you haven't seen the boat yet. They're not spooked. They're not alerted to your presence. Also, I think another big benefit to it is that especially on large Western lakes and reservoirs that we have a lot of, um, you know, one of my favorite reservoirs that, uh, and that I grew up on, it's like a 17,000 acre reservoir and there's a lot of ground to cover there. Yeah. And, you know, if you're just going out and apron up all the time, you better know exactly where the pots of fish are or else you might just be fishing empty water because yep. there are plenty of times when the fish move around so much of those large reservoirs that if you're just fishing static all the time, hey, you might you might have made the right move and you might have made a uh, guess right where the fish are at based on the conditions and you might actually absolutely hammer fish if you're in one place and the fish are concentrated there. But there's plenty of times where they're either spread out or they're simply just not concentrated where you think they are. And you could literally be fishing empty water. And so many people think, oh, why did I have such a terrible day? I didn't catch any fish or it's really slow. And it's just simply because you were parked up in a spot where the fish were. But lock style fishing allows you to cover quite a bit more water. Um, if you really do find a pile of fish, it's a little harder to stay. You know, you can't, you're not anchoring up and, and pounding on them once you find that concentration. But a lot of times what I'll do as a result is, you know, you, you throw away point the GPS on, on your, your finder and, <laughs> and you know where that pod was, where you were, and what you drift out of them and you don't find another, you know, group of fish like that in the next couple of shorter drifts that you do that. Well, you circle back around and you set up a drift to go over that again and see if that pod is still there. But so there's pros and cons to lock style fishing. I think for me, the main Honestly, the, the main benefit to it is I just find it a lot more engaging. Yep. I find it a lot more interesting because of that constant movement. There's something about wiring in my head where if I'm constantly covering new water, there's almost like always new hope. <laughs> like every, every yeah. new retreat might be showing it's just a new fish I haven't seen it yet. Whereas if I'm anchored up, I get kind of antsy. Yeah. You know, and I, unless the fishing's hot, I get kind of bored. 
<laughs> sitting in the same spot. No, it's true. And and, and I uh, my style is a bit of a blend of both. Sometimes I'll use lock style to find that pot of fish. And based on the situation I'm in, it may be better if they're concentrating as a hatch there. I might drop the hooks down and anchor up and fish that pod and for as long as they'll tolerate it and then move on again. And then there's other times I do some schools in British Columbia at Corbett Lake that's uh, one of the competition lakes uh, coming up. You mentioned earlier on about the women's world and, and the masters that are going to be there. That lake is crystal clear, has some beautiful shoals. You can see the fish cruising around. And lock style there is just a deadly approach because you would, you know, basically anchor in one spot and the fish in that environment soon become they just be on your casting range <laughs> they seem yep. to sense what your limits are and are just outside the door looking in whereas you lock style you can drift over them you're quite stealthy because you're just you know as long as you're not having a party in your boat and jumping up and down and making a lot of noise and it's just a great way to instead of covering i don't know 40 50 60 feet of that shoal you're covering the whole thing all from, right. yep. from the drop off to in that situation to a foot and a half of water i've actually had my my drogue kissing the bottom and grabbing on the odd weed and i've had to tug it free you know and just to cover all that water and it's just deadly and i i also find for beginning fly fishers or people new to lakes that aren't quite used to the distance casting as opposed to rivers and streams they don't have to make long distance casts because i always tell them don't worry about it you're going to get there right you make a 40 50 foot cast fish that one properly and you know not trying to exhaust themselves or just, you know, destroying the water with uh, overextending yeah. their abilities and crashing everything down. It's a very relaxing, fun way. And I enjoy the engagement of it, the moving of the, the fly. And as you said, those fish are, they're predators and they'll chase. And like, they like to kill things. It's, it's what they're wired to do. So it's a great method for that. So let's talk about the drogue for a second, because I think a lot of people, I get questions about, okay, what it is. So you mentioned the square paradrogues, but you'll also see the conical drogues or sea anchors over here in North America, much more so. I, like you, prefer the square paradrogue. In fact, I bought one of your drogues when you were selling them a number of years ago. You're not selling them anymore on your site, are you? Not so in we, the... we now have the Witchwood drogues. Uh, the ones yes. that we are having custom-made, the guy who was doing it, he stopped He stopped doing his seamster work. He was too busy. So yeah, so yeah we, we lost our source there. But the, you know, and Witchwood has been... In and out of stock repeatedly since uh, the, the supply chain issues from the pandemic, and it's still rolling with them. Oh, I know. As a fellow online retailer, uh, yeah, I understand. You know, and the whole world's like, why haven't you got it? And this is, believe me, I want it. Believe me, I want it. Trust me. You're the 12th yeah. person that's asked, and I can't give you what you want. I would love to sell this to you if I could yeah, get it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I just hoard them and trickle them out once a week. Um, but yeah, people, I think, I think they understand it, but the whole setting it up and deploying it and any drogue tricks you've got that you're willing to part with and not lose your competitive Yeah, yeah, advantage. no. Well, I mean, it's just basic lock-stop craft or watercraft, you know? And I think what's funny is there's still a lot of competitors that show up, especially on the domestic scene, that they don't have their own boat. They really don't fish lakes off and they focus on the river stuff and then they get in the boat with the drogue and, they just toss it out, expecting it to work great, and then they wonder why their boat is going, you know, five miles an hour, and they turn around and their drogue's in a big bump, but hasn't been doing anything for the last two hundred yards. You know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, first, let's just talk drogue style. Yeah. So, parasitic, the rectangle pair drogues, those are best for bones that have uh, relatively flat guttles, 
that don't catch wind in a really profoundly different way from the front, from the bow to the stern of the boat. Typically where I think the cone-shaped roads are maybe a little bit better is if you happen to have, if you're trying to block style fish out of something like a, a drift boat, like a river style drift boat that's very banana shaped. The problem with fishing block style out of those boats, which is kind of ironic because they're often what we fish out of in competition since that's what a lot of guys have, but they catch wind really unevenly because of that dory shape on the boat. So the front end is really high out of the water, has a lot of surface area, it catches a ton of wind, and then the back end at the stern is much narrower, kind of lower to the water, and has much less surface area, and it doesn't catch. So so you get basically what's called crabbing, where the boat rocks back and forth, and if you have a parachute drogue or a rectangular drogue, that rocking of the boat will usually fold the drogue back on itself and cause it to collapse. So, so if you have a, par- a parachute drogue or a rectangular drogue, and you have that solid boat, you actually need to slide the ropes from the drogue toward the center of the boat. So if you go kind of right in close to like your overlock, or maybe just a foot or two either side of that overlock for your ropes, that's how you can get a rectangular style drogue on one of those styles of boats to actually open up and stay open. Yeah. If you spread those ropes apart, especially all the way to the bow or the stern, when those that bow and stern start crabbing, it folds the drogue on itself and it basically just stops working. So cone shaped drogues work pretty well for drift boats because they have a single rope attachment to the center of the drogue instead of having drogue rope attachments to the ends of the, the drogue. And your boat's still going to grab and kind of pivot back and forth a lot. And that can get kind of annoying if you have gusty winds. It's usually not real bad if it's just a nice little steady trap type of wind. But if you have really heavy gusty winds, your drift boat's going to swing back and forth and kind of mess with your presentation. But with a cone-shaped drogue, at least the drogue stays open during that. Whereas with a rectangular-shaped drogue and that type of boat, it's not great. But the drawbacks to the the cone-shaped drogues, you can't really use them to direct your boat much at all. Like, you can't steer very well with them. Also, because of that single point of attachment, you have to kind of pull that cone toward the boat before you can then grab the, like, strap that comes from the rear of the cone to fold it in so it really is harder to get in and out of the water. Also, you can't motor with a cone-shaped drogue in the water because it just stays open no matter which yeah. way. And... and you're just motoring against the drogue at that point, and you'll quickly realize just how much water is being caught in that slowing down when you're in your boat's going nowhere. Plus, it could be dangerous too in certain situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because when I, it really can. If you're out in a really big wind, like if you got a 30, 40 mile an hour wind and you're trying to pull a cone shaped drogue in, there's waves crashing over the gull of the boat. You can get in trouble real quick. So I don't use the cone shaped drogue. The, most of the time i do have a massive like the biggest one that's made that i use specifically for days that are really uh windy but i still made slow presentations so actually i know we were going to talk about my book a little bit yep. but but in the book that i'm i just finished the manuscript uh for lake fishing there's one of my case studies where we're on a lake that is a really productive lake has a you know, good strong hatches, and we were there on a good chronometer day. And in the morning, uh, when the wind was low, you know, we could fish 
kind of midge tips with Corona McPeba block style and just crawling back and it was fine. But the wind had really got up, you know, by mid morning and it was raucous enough that with a rectangular shape on that day, it was just a little too fast to be able to control my retrieve very well with the midge tips. So I put out my mega drove, which <laughs> I think it's like a 78 inch diameter cone shape drug or something. That thing will make my boat crawl on a certain side mile an hour range. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really catches a lot of water and slows you down. But I hate fishing it because it's kind of a band if I can do it. So I really only deploy it on the windiest days when I still need a sleep. Even if it's a really windy day and I could get away with more of a reaction bite, like if they're still willing to chase flies, then I still just stay with the paradrug. And the bet, I guess let me get to the paradrug real quick and then I'll, um, you can jump back in. Parachute drugs, like I said, it looks just like a parachute under the water. Like think of that parasailer. In the sky, and that's that rectangular-shaped parasail over there. That's basically what you're putting under the water, and that's slowing your boat down. For most lock-style fishing, and for most boats, as long as you don't have a really uneven gullet like that, the, the rectangular drogues work fine. I guess a couple of things that help when you're fishing those. Number one, if you have drogue clamps. So there's kind of ratchet clamps that you can buy. Um, which would actually sell them, but you can get them online. Uh, and we have the ratchet clamps in store. You can also get them online separately, but they're basically just little C clamps that have a ratchet. You can clamp to this, the guttles on your boat so that you can anchor your rope wherever you want. You can move it along the guttle. You don't just have to have a, a carabiner and flip it to the end. It's like a lot of the drugs come with, or a lot of people are used to. And so that's really important for, for a couple of reasons. Most boats will basically end up drifting sideways, you know, or at, at an angle based to, uh, on the wind. And you can move those clamps uh, up and down the gull. And usually, if you slide them both to one side of the boat or the other, you can find a location to where and it allows your boat to drift straight, yep. um, regardless of the style of boat that you have. Uh, for my own boat, I've got like a 14-foot beetle that I do most of my lock-style fishing out of. And if I slide both those ropes toward the stern, so the the front rope that's in between the center of the gunnel and the, the bow, it's probably closer, it's quite a bit closer to the center of that gunnel than it is to the bow. And then the, the back rope is probably only like 8 to 10 inches from the stern most of the time. And those are locations on my boat that I can get it to drift straight. But then you can also, if you want to steer your boat a little bit left or right, you can mess with those rogue attachments so that you intentionally uh, make the boat go off kilter just by a few degrees. And then you can kind of drift diagonally one way or another, especially if you're drifting a shoreline and trying to stay a, a certain distance off that shoreline, that can be helpful in that regard. And then besides that, I guess the basic just setting and retrieving the drug with a, a parachute drug i'm kind of amazed at how little people pay attention to this sometimes they just kind of throw it out and forget about it hope for the best <laughs> hope for the best yeah so but you don't want to to huck it because in a wind if you throw that drug out in the air well guess what happens the wind just folds it back up on itself but yeah around your face <laughs> Exactly. It does the opposite. It collapses the drogue. Yeah. So what you want to do when you pull the drogue, pull it from one side. And when you go to pull it, don't pile it up in a heap in the boat. Try and keep it spread out along the gunnel 
in the moat so that it's already spread that, so that then when you go to drop it, just gently drop it over the back of the boat um, or over the side, you know, and then it'll take a second until the, the boat moves far enough to catch up and put tension on the ropes, but it's far more reliable if you've already got the drogue spread out along the side of the boat when you drop it in. It's much more likely to actually grab than when the wind catches up and your, your drogue ropes get tight. If you huck it out there and it lands in a heap, half the time, maybe it's going to open up correctly. Well, I've had the other it, half, it's going to get... I've had it twist up, you know, early in... When yeah, you just, yeah, Because exactly. I had, you know, you, what do you do with this thing? I don't know, you just... Because you always see in books and magazines, in my own book, I guess I'm a little guilty because I had Todd <laughs> show, I said, send me a picture of throwing the drogue, right? Just to illustrate it. And uh, that chuck it and chance it, it gets all twisted up and you spend more time looking behind exactly. you, figuring that stupid thing out than you are fishing uh, downwind as you should be. So... That's a great tip. Yeah, so I think throwing the drogue is probably a little bit of a misdirection yeah. or a misnomer in that part. It should be setting yeah, the drogue. Setting it, yeah, Just set it over the side of the boat, and that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. I've also found, too, on some, I've actually changed the ropes from more of a buoyant rope to one that wants to sink and increase, um, you know, the get heavier carabiners or what i call snap links or dog leash clips is probably the what so that helps especially the lower half because i've had sometimes the drogue won't open because the flow of the water is keeping the top of it and the bottom up on top yeah it yeah, won't yeah, yeah. open up and i've talked to some you know competitors and uh anglers over in england and asked if they ever put little clip weights or something just in certain situations to just get that bottom lip to drop down and open up and then the drogue will inflate and lock in place you ever do things like that yeah, so actually back in the day, the first strokes that I had, I had a, a 10-foot pram that I did most of my lockstock fishing out of for a long time. And it actually drifted pretty darn well, at least once the drogue was set. But it would blow along super fast to, the, uh, to begin with until the drogue caught. And a lot of times it would go so fast that it would just collapse the drogue and keep it yep. pinned together like you're talking about. It's almost like planing on top of the servers, right? So for a while, I... So this is back when I was a biologist, or actually I was in grad school. I took some weighted rope from the bottom of the gill net, and I basically wrapped it on to the bottom of the drogue so that I had like a little lead core line and one on the bottom of the drogue. <laughs> Good idea. And then I took uh, like uh, foam pool noodles. Yeah. That, you know, like floaty noodles that your kids would have in the pool. And I cut little short sections of it and basically attached them to the upper part of the, the drug right at the attachment there and taped them on so that the top would float a little bit and then that bottom would dig in. The trick was trying to get it so that it was somewhat neutrally buoyant yeah. because it does actually help if your drogue dives a little bit because the, the deeper it gets, usually the slower it'll make the boat go. But if it sinks like a rocket, all you do is put weights at the bottom. You're going to, and you, especially if you have a lake that happens to have logs or rocks or whatever, you're going to be catching up your drogue on the bottom a lot, and that's a pain in the butt. Uh, you could even lose some drogues. I've seen guys lose them in competitions before when they got a lodge on just couldn't get them off. Well, I think of places like Quake Lake in uh, in uh, Montana. It's, it's it's a drogue eater. Or, or Crane Prairie in Oregon. Yeah. You know, we're actually having a, a competition there in a, about a week and a half. And, and last time I was there, we had a Nationals there, and – it was a drogue eating time. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to drift over those logs and wear them were down. 
So you got to be careful of that. You want to rig up something like that. If you're having problems with your drogue opening, that's one way to defeat it. You can even get, you know, get some fishing sinkers yeah. or something and attach them to the bottom quarters of the drogue and then have something buoyant, even if it's not that buoyant, just a little bit buoyant on the upper quarters, just so that naturally that bottom wants to drop and that top wants to stay near the surface. And then that'll help that drogue spread out. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Daddy Flies, established in 1928, is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world. And you know I'm all about the history and fly fishing, which is one reason I'm super stoked to have Daddy on as a sponsor this year. Long before I made my first order with Daddy, I remember hearing stories about the quality and the history and always wanting to connect deeper with them. So that time has come now, and I share the Daddy tradition with you. Located in Livingston Manor on the banks of Willow Weemock Creek, Deddy is your welcoming place on the creek or online. Their retail and online shop have a large selection of flies, materials, fly gear, outdoor lifestyle items, books, and more. Deddy Fly's inventory consists solely of products that meet every angler's demand for highest quality and service. Of course, they offer fly fishing and casting lessons as well as guided trips. For more information, visit DeddyFlies at wetflyswing.com slash Deddy or give them a call 845-439-1166. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy, D-E-T-T-E. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link to Deddy. Okay, let's get back to the show. Have you ever seen, I've seen in England, they do it a lot, they, you know, a lot of times we're just clipping it directly to the clamps or, you know, sometimes I'll wrap it around a couple of times and then clip it back, the ro- like wrap the rope around the clamp and then clip the yeah. carabiner on the rope. But I've seen now some of them have actually on their clamps have got carabiners set up and they actually run the ropes through those carabiners and take the individual ropes and they meet. It's hard to describe without visually seeing it, but they basically clip them together by running them through those carabiners and clip the two ropes together so they're in the middle so they can basically slide the drogue ropes left and right um, because the ropes don't connect directly to the clamps but go through the clamps and connect to each other along the gunnel of the boat and they're able to slide as you mentioned earlier to make that boat crab or, or adjust to whatever the conditions are do you ever do that i haven't done that myself no i know i you know i was talking to actually the airflow guys and some of the others uh, Air Force used to make a, a drogue and then they stopped and I was like, so do you guys have plans to make one again? And they're like, well, if we do, we want to do it right. And this is the way we'll do it. And it sounds kind of like they had an idea similar to, to what you're doing, but it just hasn't been a top priority, I guess, for me. And they have come out with it. Well, maybe people like you and ourselves can drive the sales over here and <laughs> make it a reality. Well, that's the funny. There's enough people who've kind of caught on to the idea in North America of it. You know, there's a market for droves and for lock style stuff here because it's it is a it's a really fun way to fish. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, the only thing I'll say sometimes if you go to a lake and there's a it's more of an anchored community and you show up with a drogue, the two methods don't work very well. It's if you try to drift through anchored boats, it's probably going to be confrontational to be diplomatic or vice versa. If it's if you go to England, for example, and they've got those the locks there or the reservoirs with, you know, established their name drifts almost like runs on a steel. Yeah, exactly. And you mm-hmm. decide to drop your anchors in the middle of that drift. It's not going to go well for you. 
I don't think you're not going to be popular yeah. when you get back to the landing stage. Yeah, you're going to get overly close uh, <laughs> to other boats pretty pretty quickly. And probably get some interesting advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the good thing is that, you know, there aren't that many lakes out there at this point that are uh, maybe as crowded as you might find rivers, you know, here in the Western United States. Or, or But uh you have a lake where there's a... Uh, a lot of people posted up, especially in popular areas. And you're either going to want to drift the periphery of those areas or just find someplace else to fish. Cause, um, I guess that is one of the good parts though, is that, um, because you're locked style fishing, you can cover a lot of water and you might find some hot spots that aren't necessarily locally dinner, but you know, you can go out with plenty of fun, catch and fish elsewhere on, on the still water. Okay. So that's cool. Most so, of the time. you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing again is the difference with the lock style as opposed to that sort of kicking paddle or uh, mooching approach if you will and the anchored up and fishing in that manner that's different so let's talk a little bit about your gear choices rods lines any differences there or any um i know as i carry based on my competition and just following that scene people like yourself and particularly over in europe i carry a lot of fly lines <laughs> like over the top maybe so I can't. Yeah. Only, I always joke, only the paranoid survive, right? Because once you see somebody doing well with a particular line type or style, I want one and I want it badly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes I feel like I, I gave myself too many options. Uh, in my real bag right now, I've got 24 or 25 lines in there. Yeah. I want to think on any given day, I got about 20 just for goofing around. And, and mostly I carry yeah. more because I'm running. I need a gear bag for lines and a gear bag for gear <laughs> other gear yeah so i mean i have a lot of lines now does that mean that you have to have that to go lifestyle fishing absolutely not i mean one thing i will say is that it does help a lot to have a full spread of sinking lines at least all the way from top to bottom from the intermediate or even a slow intermediate to a faster intermediate, all the way down to a, a type seven Simply because while I still do countdowns and everything like that when you're lockstop fishing, when you're drifting, you don't have as long that you can count down before you have to start retrieving your flies. So so you can, and also there's just less time for each retrieve to be able to play out. And so a lot of times I would say you might need to fish one uh, rate sinking line faster than you would if you were just parked up and, and fishing a spot. Simply because... You got to be able to get down to whatever depths you think the fish are at a little bit quicker than when you're anchored up and then try and keep it there while you're then retrieving, you know, as, as the boat's getting closer and closer to the flies. So if you don't have some of those deeper sinking lines, there's going to be days when you just flatten this out because your flies are going to be over the heads of the fish a long ways for pretty much the whole time. Oh, with that being said, there's obviously still plenty of times when the fish are up high and, and you need those floating or midship or or really slow intermediate options. So while you don't necessarily need to go out and buy sweet lines on top of sinking lines, on top of other companies' sinking lines, on top of different like sort of midge tips, on, you know, basically like I have. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> We're in counseling together, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A fly line uh, junkies and all of us. But with that said, it, it does help to have at least the range of blinds. And that's what, you know, I think that's where cassette reels kind of 
end up being pretty popular just because at least then you're paying 20 bucks for a plastic cassette for each while and that it goes on instead of 200 for a you know machine aluminum spool yeah. that's got to go on and in addition to the fly line so i would say kind of cassette reels end up ruling the, the day on the competition circuit because also like if you get 20 aluminum spools in a bag it gets pretty darn heavy yeah. or for me i just got off that backpacking trip yeah my early days of backpacking when i had everything on machine delivered schools that was like an extra you know however many ounces of weight that i was adding to my backpack every year and eventually i was like i'm not doing this anymore because i still like to have a, a good range of lines when i'm in the backcountry so shedding some aluminum for plastic is a good way to cut back some weight yeah so what about rods so on the uk scene i would say that 10 foot 7 weights are probably the main rod that you'll see on the North American side, I think most of us, well, there's a good split. On our team, I would say maybe half of us are probably fishing 10 foot 6 weights most of the time. That's what I like. Uh, you know, whereas the other half are still fishing a 10 foot 7 weight. For me, the 10 foot 6 weight is kind of a nice sweet spot, at least from a competitive perspective, because often we still get on venues where the fish are pretty small. And if you have a super stiff 10 foot seven weight that's just got no give in the tip and those tiny little flippy fish, when you're sitting there retrieving them, trying to fight them and get them into the net, the tip doesn't have enough cushion to kind of oscillate with those little head shakes or those little fish. And you do what we end up calling bouncing fish a lot. Or it's just like they're on a solid thing. And as that fish is head, that's it. So eventually just throws the hook. Cause we're also required to fish barbless hooks, which I think people should be doing anyway from uh fish health and or aesthetic perspective uh, all those smiley fish that are missing maxillary bones out there would be missing a lot less of them if people were fishing uh barbless hooks but yeah so 10 foot six weights normally why land it's still got enough power that not only do you need to handle some wind but you can handle some big fish the 10 feet length is nice because for a couple of things, you know, I mean, when you're casting over the boat, especially if you have a boat partner over your casting side, it's nice to have a little bit longer rod to try and help keep those flies higher over the boat so that you're maybe not putting one in the back of your boat partner's head. And then also when the fish come up on the head, so that head is basically that part of the end of your retrieve where, um, I'll, I, I should get into this in a second. It's a whole other topic. But basically, there's to me, there's four parts of any retrieve. And that the ending part of that retrieve is the hang, where you've gone through the draw, the downswing, the upswing, and down. Uh, you're right at the, the near approaching the boat where your flies are getting close. And you typically want to extend your rod out away from the boat so that that rod tip is a long ways away. So that as the fish come up and see your flies, they're not also seeing the boat. And if you have a 10 foot rod, that's an extra foot of reach that hopefully keeps the flies a little bit further away from the boat than if you have a nine foot rod. And it can make a difference, especially if you're in clear water where those fish can see for a long ways. Yeah. No, the hang, I tell people, you want to up your catch rate 20, even 30%, just fish the hang. So many people just pick up and cast and, yeah. Don't give that fish a chance or they get tugged and miss it or there's a swirl or a flash of whatever color is silver, brown if it's a brown trout or whatever, and they miss uh, that fish. And, you know, and I've let it hang. I remember one day on um, Henry's Lake, I let it sit for over 20 seconds and a fish came, right? So you're always playing around with, 
how fast you hang, raise up the rod and how long you let those fly or flies sit, right? It's amazing how many people you can, how people, how many fish you can coax uh, to come up and have a look. It's quite exciting because you get to see it. Sometimes I actually, I mean, whether you're fishing a Mitch tip line or a longer kind of intermediate Mitch style tip line, there are days where I try and actually set up my presentation to be a perpetual hang. Yeah. Where I've got weighted telling supplies and each time I pull on the rig, I'm trying to raise those flies up and then I stall it. And I'm hoping those fish are going to come then. And basically you're doing one continual hang the whole time until the final one. And I've had, and there's one lake in particular uh, that we've done a few competitions on where we usually divide that lake up into like a north end and a south end. And then the north end is much dowler and has, you know, kind of typical wheat bed style fishing up and up in the, the upper end and a lot of water that's like less than 10 feet deep. And then the deep bend, you're fishing over water that's 50 feet deep. And there's fish that are out there suspended eating zooplankton. And they're 20, 25 feet down a lot of them. And actually the best way to get them is to fish a really long intermediate tip line or really heavy flies. And you sit there and you park it out there vertically. And it just stays there for the whole time. And you raise it up and then you drop them back down. You raise it up and you drop them back down. And there have been times on that lake when I've hung, uh, especially on a calm day when you're not really drifting very fast, I'll raise it up on the hang to begin with. And then I'll actually jig it back down and jig it up and jig it back down. I might do three or four of those. And finally on the fourth one, you know, the fish takes it. And so the hang can be... Very, very important. It's almost like a Stillwater induced take, like Frank Sawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lysinger lift popped to your, mind too. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. What about leaders? Let's talk about leaders because I know everybody's got. God, you could fill seven podcasts with leader discussions because that's <laughs> as you and I do presentations at shows. That usually is put a leader slide up and the whole <laughs> out come the iPhones, up come the arms, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, because everybody's fascinated by that stuff, and I think a lot of anglers don't perhaps pay as much attention to as to why the you know why certain why do you use this leader in this situation and why not that leader in this situation? Yeah, so uh, going to the competitive framework of things on this. I think what you'll find far more in the competitive world than you will maybe outside of it is pretty much leaders with very little to no taper. Yep. So flat leaders, um, pretty simple formulas really for the most part. A lot of the guys in the UK, they're just fishing like five or six feet to their first fly and then another five or six feet to each additional fly. The, the flies are always on dropper tags, mm-hmm. so we're always putting them – my dropper tags that are 8, 10, 12 inches long, probably, um, so that they have free range of movement under the water. Plus, from a competitive side, it's actually a rule that any additional fly that we have has to be on a, a dropper tag. But even if it wasn't a rule and I wasn't fishing in a competition, I would never go back. No. Yeah, tying off the bend, what I call tandem style. No way. Um, yeah. You can change flies quickly. They work independently of each other. Yeah, it's just so much better. And and you get far less foul of them too because you don't get fish coming and biting the back of the fly and having that tippet on the back of the hook blocking their mouth and getting on yep. that hook. So then when you set the hook, it flosses them basically and you end up foul hooking up with that fly that's you know down the leader. So so yeah, flies are always on dropper tags. And then, you know, pretty simple leader formulas. For me, I would say I kind of just do one thing that's a little bit different. I normally have 
probably a three to three and a half maximum four foot section, usually about three or three and a half of just some 10 pound test maximum helium at the butt of my leader for kind of two reasons. Number one, it is for how thin it is, it's markedly stiff. And so it does allow you just to get a little bit more energy transfer and help with turnover, especially on like a midge tip line where you've got that intermediate tip at the end of the line. That thing will crash on a cast if you just have a straight tippet only type of rig like that the intermediate tip on the end just wants to kick over and then it'll smack the water. And especially if you're fishing the rising fish or something, it can put them off. So I put a little bit of chameleon in there just to help continue that energy transfer down the leader a little bit so that the line tip doesn't crash like that. But also if you have straight tippet, uh, you know, 2X, 3X, 4X, whatever you might be fishing, if you're repeatedly stripping that through those top guides all day long, especially when you go to land fish and it's under pressure, well, it's basically just like taking scissors to that ribbon that you're putting on a present and it ends up curling your tippet. And so you'll get the butt section of your leader, quote unquote, you know, that's that uh, straight tippet bit. It'll start to pigtail over time. And that can actually, as you're retrieving, if that catches water weird, it can lead to your leader twisting a little bit more. And also, you know, you have to worry about it maybe weakening the tip, but a little bit in that stretch. So I, I like that short stretch of, of Maxima just to break up that butt section, give me a little bit of energy transfer. But then from that on, it's usually just straight tip and similar spacing. If I'm using reactionary bite methods, going back to, you know, stripping or as the UK guys can call it, pulling flies, that's retreating flies often pretty quickly. Then I want my flies spaced at least five feet apart. Um, the, you want the flies to be fairly independent so that you want the fish to zone in on one fly. See that fly. If it doesn't like it and it turns away, then you've got another fly that's five, six feet behind. But as that passes, then there's another individual fly that it sees. And maybe one more if you've got a three fly ring. But what you don't want is your flies. I, I see it so many times. You know, flies, guys are fishing, they're 18 inches, two feet apart. Yeah. That's basically like you're fishing two flies in one. And the fish is probably going to get confused looking at it. It's like, well, what, which one do I watch? I don't know. I don't know. I'll, you know, by the time yeah. that rig has gone by, I don't think they work as well uh, if you're spaced that close together. The one time when I do space my flies closer is when I'm fishing nets or crawlaments. Yeah. A lot of times I'll have my flies faced like three feet apart, then instead of like six, because I may want them all kind of in the lower part of the calm, or I may want them all fairly high, but I can actually dial in sections of the column better with a nim break if my flies are a little bit closer together. And they're going to be usually hanging more vertically anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm still slicing a pretty good part of the column if I'm fishing my nips three feet apart. But also if I run into some shallow water and I've got my nymph rig and my flies are six feet apart. Well, guess what? If you get fairly vertical with it, your top line might be 10 feet higher than your bottom line. And you can't fish very shallow unless you then go to a washing line or something, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know when we fish indicators, we tend to fish our flies compressed because they hang more vertically, mm -hmm. particularly in that situation where chronomet fishing, where they're typically feeding within a couple, three feet of the bottom. That's where they're going to be. You need to get your flies in that zone and keep them there. And the only other time I'll fish mine close together is if I've got fish actively crashing bait fish, balling them up, smashing them, 
and you know the schools try to reform and it's kind of our, our uh, the, i don't know if you ever heard the alabama rig the in bass yeah, fishing all they the, use like the, the, the hooks in one location yeah an umbrella rig i think they call them yeah. yeah trying to simulate a school of small bait fish trying to reform because the bigger the school the more protection they have you know so that's about the only time is when they're busting and i want to simulate maybe two and like you they're not 12 inches apart they may be two or three feet apart but most times they're, they're spaced out for just about any other application. Um, you mentioned two things. We'll talk about the washing line in a second because I love that. Um, but the four parts of a retrieve. So let's, you mentioned the hang, but I think listeners are probably go, okay, what's the other three? <laughs> yeah. So I kind of break it down into to four parts. Like I said, the, the first part is just the drop. So you've made your cast, uh, your, your flies hit the water. Most of the time you're probably going to Hopefully do one or two strips there to get your leader straight. If it didn't turn over perfectly straight, you know, then if you want to get a strip or two just to straighten your leader that way, as your rig is sinking, if a, a fish happens to come and take then you at least don't have a whole bunch of slack in the line so that you actually can still be able to take. But that's the drop. And that could be anywhere from you're not waiting at all and you're retrieving right away, especially if you're trying to keep your flies higher, or you might, you know, Fish that drop 5, 10, 15, whatever, you know, that also turns into a countdown, right? So for those of you who who fish the countdown method and you're trying to get your flies to a certain place, then the drop is basically the countdown. And the length of time that you vary it is, is, you know, how how much drop you're going to get there. But that is a really actually important part of the tree because there are a lot of times when your flies make those plops right on the surface, that attracts attention from fish, especially in kind of calmer type conditions. It might pull the fish to the area. And many times you might make your first grip and there's already a fish there. And you got to pay attention to that because there are times when that accounts for a good portion of the fish. And if you just kind of cast it out and just start ripping right away, you're missing that initial attraction and bring the fish to you and then that slow fall a lot of times before you've imparted any movement, a lot of times that is what convinces fish to eat. So then you can use that information not only for your retrieves, but just make sure you maybe incorporate that into every retrieve. Then there's what I call the downswing. And then that's just the time from when you've started your retrieve after that drop and your flies typically are going down, 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 down. Uh, whether that's because they're weighted and they're progressively sinking or because you have a sinking line on and that sinking line is starting to pull them down. They're gradually getting deeper throughout probably the first two-thirds of your retreat. And then there's usually sort of an inflection point where they bottomed out or gotten as deep as they could possibly get and they start to swing around that corner and come up toward the boat. So I call that the upswing. And the Many times when you're retrieving flies, anytime your flies have a change of direction like that, those are really important times that end up convincing a lot of fish to eat. So if you get that hard angle change from the downswing to the upswing, that is a trigger point. Uh, and one of those stages of the retrieval where a lot of fish finally commit that might have been following for a long time. So that's often, you know, you'll watch, your, especially if you're fishing deep sinking leads, you watch that angle about per ton of that angle can't get any steeper because now that you've retrieved enough line that 
it's basically coming up at you that soften when you seal that new wall, you know, and, and the fish is eaten right at the beginning of the upswing. And then the upswing just ends with the hang. So what's your, uh, normally with the, uh, the fly line that I use, I have a hang marker. A lot of commercial lines these days will come with one. Many of those commercial hang markers to me aren't that helpful. They're either like just sections of the line that are dyed differently than the rest of the line or like some the Rio ones, for instance, they have a, almost an extra heat shrink tubing that's on the outside of the line that's white. But what really helps me with a hang marker is actually when it makes an audible click going through my guides so that I know it's coming in. So I actually add hang markers to my fly lines. I, I take some really heavy fly tying floss and just start wrapping it on the line and then you pinch the end of it and just use the line and you know make the bobbin and stick it around it a bunch of times without um, taking your teeth out <laughs> yeah well yeah. Uh, yeah do it away from you obviously yeah. uh and so then you can then take like a bobbin threader and then make the last five six turns over that bobbin threader cut your thread put it through the bobbin threader and then when you pull it through you basically made a whip finish so you can make a hang marker out of heavy thread that way and cover it in a whole bunch of super glue so that it doesn't come apart. But you want to raise it a long ways up off the fly line. So you want like two, almost three times the diameter of the fly line to be in thread at that point, for, for me anyway. So that then when it hits that, those first couple of guides, you actually get a little bump, a little click as you strip it in that tells you, oh, the hang marker is getting close to my hands. I better be prepared. And then when the hang marker gets to my hand, or I see it coming out of that stripping guide, then I can extend that rod and really start to gradually lift that tip up, pull those flies up toward the hang. And, you know, sometimes the fish don't follow your flies very up on the, uh, very far up on the hang. They might just commit right at the beginning and, and you never find them getting higher. But a lot of times, especially if you've got multiple fly rigs, I've had plenty of times where I hang and I go over that first dropper and it's right below the surface and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I've hung. I go to cast and I lift my flies up out of water to make cast. And then you still add another one down there looking at your point fly or whatever. And you get that swirl at the surface and you're like, well, that sucks. You know? So, so yeah, you, you gotta kind of pinpoint on the day, how long those fish are sitting there and how far they're willing to go on the hang. And so especially on days when the wind is blowing slower and you're not drifting as fast and you have a longer two hang, I recommend taking a quite a long time to hang the days when it's blowing really heavy and the boat is drifting really quick, you're not going to have as long to hang because by the time you go to lift those flies, the boat is basically drifting over the top of them. And, you know, you've got to be casting because the fish are gone by that point anyway. So you know, all, if the boat's all over the top of them. So also on those days, you want to hang further away from the boat. So you might start that hang when the hay marker is maybe midway through your rod and really stand out there and, you know, make your last few strips with your rod out away from the boat to try and bring the flies up a ways out so that you're not drifting on top of them right away. But to me, those are the four kind of phases of the retrieves. Each one of them, you know, is important um, and can produce fish, but learning to recognize each of those transitions, a lot of times the transition is uh, when the fish ends up taking between those each of those four phases. So you've got to be ready at those transition points to be able to set a hook. I think a lot of people get kind of surprised, especially on those last two on the upswing and, and the hay. The fish 
bite so frequently at those two that if you're not ready to strip set right away as it goes from downswing to upswing, or if you're going and you're fumbling as you go between the upswing and that hang for a little bit and you're not ready to set the hook, a lot of times you get that quick bite and you're like, oh, you know, because uh, it's at a weird point where it doesn't feel right to strip set because the line is so short at that point. You actually will break a lot of fish off if you have a direct connection to your, like from your rod tip down to your flies. But at the same time, if you set the hook super hard on something like that uh, uh, and you're, you weren't ready, then you're either messing where you pull the flies way out of the water and you've lost your chance to maybe get uh, a second grab on the hang. So, so yeah, you, you kind of want to just be careful and, and make sure that you are ready at each of those transition points because that's when a lot of your takes are probably going to come. That's great tips because that may be one of the big nuggets of this whole podcast is that because I think most people just chuck it out and they just let it sink and they kind of maybe catch, watch the birds for a while and they're not in control of those sinking flies. They get grabs. They don't even know that we're there because they were so much slack and then they just lose control of things. And yeah, basically as soon as those flies enter the water till the time you take them out to cast again, they're working and you need to be on top of them. So that's a great way. It's grandma's old adage, right? You know, that you can't catch fish unless your flies are in the water. But also it doesn't matter if your flies in the water, you're not actually paying attention to them and whether there's a fish there. And in control of them, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, um, just quickly back to leaders because we always get asked this, fluorocarbon or nylon <laughs> or both. Uh, I usually fish fluoro. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, you know, for a couple of reasons, it is a little more abrasion resistant. So if you happen to be in a place where you're contacting rocks or things like that, then you'll usually get a little longer life out of it. It's also a little stiffer. So when you're still fishing that thin flat leader, you can get a little more turnover or energy transfer from it. Um, also I do find that, uh, in fluoro for me, my not strength lasts longer. The initial knot strength in nylon is actually quite good. And a lot of times, some of the tests that you see out there, nylon outperforms fluoro when they initially you know, pull the knot. But I feel like uh, for myself, number one, nylon does absorb water more readily than fluorocarbon. So over time, it can actually weaken because of that absorption of water that then infiltrates the material. But also after the repeated stressing of that connection from your fly to that fly knot, um, nylon for me, it tends to weaken quicker for me. And I get more breakoffs after I've fished a fly for half an hour or an hour that I didn't expect just because the knot has kind of been repeatedly stressed and kind of worn its way through that more uh, uh, supple nylon, you know, whereas that stiffer flora to me, it, it ends up resisting a little bit more of that stress for longer on the knot and I can get more fish or more time with each fly before I have to worry about changing the knot. But you know, if you got a 15 foot liter of fluorocarbon, that's a lot of fluorocarbon that you might be chosen. <laughs> it's usually a little cost usually comes in for most of it. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, okay. You mentioned the washing line and it's a, a technique I love to use and we should probably touch on it a little bit. Just explain to everybody what, what exactly you're talking about. Yeah. So I guess let's just maybe back up for one second sure. and realize that there's a lot of ways to make your flies behave differently in the water and to attain different depth. One of the main ways that we always think about is what we already talked about, and that's the fly line that you actually pick, right? Whether that fly line is a floating or a midge tip, which just has the end of it that sinks, or maybe a longer sink tip that's still intermediate, or it might be a sinking line and has 
varying rates of, of sick, right? So those are all ways that a fly line can then deliver your flies to different parts of the water. But also, the flies themselves and the way they're constructed and tied can vary where they go in the water. So if you have fast sicking flies with tungsten beads, you can get those flies progressively deeper and deeper. The more tungsten you add to your rig, whether that's more flies that have tungsten or bigger beads on those flies, you can get your flies pretty deep, even if you're on a floater, right? Mm -hmm. You can still get your flies very deep. But sometimes you want to keep your flies in a very specific range of the column, or maybe you're right up at the top. And one of the ways you can do that is with what's called the washing line. So there aren't a lot of people out there with clotheslines in a lot of the world these days. But <laughs> if you go to certain areas where the conditions are white, you still do see a lot of people that dry their clothes um, the, the old fashioned way out on a clothesline or a washing line. And so what do you see with the washing? You see basically a line that the clothes are clipped to and then this banana shape, you know, this arc shape in the middle. So when you fish a washing line, that's basically what you're trying to do with your rig. So one side is the fly line, your leader's in the middle and it's drooping in that banana shape. And the other side is a floating fly or a blade fly. And you can put unweighted flies in the middle, but you can put still weighted flies if you want in the middle. You can do a buoyant fly on both sides to really keep your rig higher. Or if you happen to be fishing that rig on a sinking line, you can fish it from the bank if you're bank fishing. Have two floating flies and none weighted fly in the middle, then you're less likely to have your flies come in contact with the bottom, you know, as you're retrieving. But a washing line is that effect where you have a floating fly on the end, and then you have another fly or, or flies on droppers in the middle, and then your fly line on the other side. So it can be used for lots of things. I think one of the ways that it was used originally is you get a lot of times when fish are rising um, and they might be taking flies during the hatch, but a lot of times they're taking pupa that are right below the surface. And they try as you may try as you might, you can fish all the dry fly patterns that are sitting on top or even in the field of the world, and they still don't really seem to like your rig or your fly. So one of the ways you can cover about that is to put a buoyant fly out on the end that floats right in the surface cell. And then you can put NAMP circa out of a pupa on droppers that are kind of unweighted then you might have a floating line. And so basically your ends of that washing line are right up at the surface and the chromatic people are just within six inches to a foot, maybe foot and a half below the surface. So a lot of those fish that are cruising along right at the surface, taking those pupa, those pupa now are at their level. It's not below them. It's not up floating on top. It's in that narrow range in or just below the surface where they're going to see those pupa and be willing to come along. And take them. So that's a great way to park your flies shallow, but still get good grabs. I find a lot of times, like it, you know, a lot of people, in the, especially in the States or, or in Canada, or, or you might fish a dry dropper to try and do that same thing mm -hmm. on a really short dropper, but the actual take to landing ratio on dry dropper rings, I find, is actually pretty poor when they're, that fly is hanging below that dry fly and it's kind of relatively tethered and tight to it. They come along and they take that dropper. And they sort of feel the weight of that, that dry fly and they end up spitting out that fly really before you set the hook and you get connected. But with a, a washing line, there's just like a little bit more slack that they have to work with where they can get their, their mouth open for that, that nymph and actually, you know, get it in and, and 
you get tight to them before you set the hook and your conversion rates are really high with that rate. Yeah, I love fishing it. I had a situation in Idaho last year where fish were up on the surface, like you described, feeding on the odd adult, and but mostly the pupa below the surface, and they were scattered. Casting to the rises would have driven you crazy. But I yeah. just put a, a fab on the point, which is a blob with a split foam tail on the back, and hung a couple of chironomid pupa off separate droppers in between it. And I think I was using a floater. I might have been using a midge, a midge tip and and just was able to track those flies all the way back through that feeding zone and cover that wide range of area because they were rising so scattered and randomly. It was just, you would have just gone crazy waiting to cast or as soon as you made a cast, it was the wrong spot. This just worked really well. Yeah, well, I think you just hit on another really important point there is that when you've got this three-ply rig and your flies have spaced apart aren't like that, not only can you cover different parts of the pollen, but you can actually cover far more lateral of a surface area as well. And when you have those fish that are rising, unless you actually have a more of a view down on it, a lot of times you can't watch the individual fish after it's risen, especially if there's glare or whatever like that, right? And so you might see it rising. It might go head to tail on, and you think it's going that way, but then I can't tell you how many times I've seen a fish do it about face underwater when I actually have been able to watch them, and you had no idea. And if you just park a single dry fly or even a team, two dry flies out there, you're not covering as much lateral part of the, the, the still water as well. So just by having more flies out there and having them spread far apart on the wash and land rig, you give yourself a more opportunity for a fish to actually just simply see your fly and come across it and then be well needed. Okay. Well, we're... God, I could sit and talk like this all day, Devin, but you've got things to do and uh, probably our listeners too as well. Um, let's just touch, um, before we wrap this up, a little bit on your flies. You mentioned a lot of reaction type flies, what I call attractor flies, flies that maybe not necessarily super imitative, but certainly trigger a response. Have you got you know, sort of a top five you'd, you'd like to, flies you'd like to use or fly styles that you find yourself using most often? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, ah, boy. Tough questions, right? Yeah. It's the worst question, and I, I'm kicking myself for asking it because it's very rarely the fly. But you you mentioned style. Let's talk about styles of flies. Maybe it's a better way. Yeah, well, uh, okay. So there's – my cat is going to scream here. It's, I'm going to put you down real quick and tell where to ask. He's going to hear me out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so back to food because fish want the food here. Um Okay, so there's a, any number of variations on, we'll, we'll just call them bugger style flies, right? So the basic shape of a woolly bugger, you can substitute any last thing that you want for that body, and then there's probably some sort of marabou tail, either with or without flash. One of my favorites is what I call the older humongous, so the humongous style bugger is a pretty famous pattern in the UK. A lot of people track it back to Dave Downey from Scotland, but basically it's just woolly bugger that has a tinsel chenille body that's usually silver or gold and i may have substituted that body and that hackle instead for like hairline uh, medium uh, uv polar chenille but you could use any number of other products like that we've also got one of the shop called Textream spriggle i think is what it's called and it's kind of one that's like half and half, you can half of it is like the silver or the gold and the other half will be black or whatever. So it's a little less in your face, I guess. But there's all sorts of straggles type chenilles like that these days where 
you've got a core and then you've got fibers coming off of one side of that core. And that's what you kind of need. The fibers come off of one side, then you wrap it, and it ends up forming pretty much like the hackle on your butter, but it's also flashing. So the polar, polar bugger is polygibungus uh, is a really important pattern for me because it brings fish to your rig really well. It's a very kind of flashy bugger, but not so lit up pearl type flashy that a lot of times fish, they'll crush it. And especially if you happen to have a place where they eat bait fish and you have those little silvery flashes going on all the time from bait fish, that seems to be a, a one situation where they really like that. Then there's any number of other buggers. Usually some core ones for me would be either all of our black bodies that have a, a fluorescent feed, and that could be orange or chartreuse most of the time. And the list could go on and on in various buggers. So, you know, plenty of people with fishing some sort of leech. I would say have some that are flashy, have some that are mute-colored, have some that have fluorescent hotspot-type beats, and there you go. You've got some flies that are going to work, right? Beyond that, I fish lots of different trail but I really, you know, I probably don't have near the spread of coronavirus pupa in my boxes that you or, or Ryan would have. I really kind of rely on maybe four of them for most of my fishing and just in a few various sizes and maybe a few colors. Pretty basic style patterns. You know, in our own conversations, I've mentioned how much I like the chromate, so that's always one that I like. And then other similar style pupa ones that might have black holographics for the body and a red rib um, maybe a white bee or silver you know and then like a pheasant tail version that is kind of just like a, a frenchy style yeah lance's uh yeah frenchy yeah that one works really well and with or without a you can put hot spot beads on them again too so with or without hot spot beads on the days when they want hot spot beads you put that on the rig that fly's going to get eaten every time Yep. On the days when they don't, then they're going to not take it at all. So it's always worth trying. And you might find that it really works or you might find that it doesn't. Uh, so there's those. Then you you, you got to have some other flies like um, I fish mops and mop boobies a lot. So the mop style fly that's kind of very common on the river competitive scene. Instead of tying that on a jig hook, I tie it on a straight shank, you know, kind of like short streamer or long nymph hook and then uh, you can do it with or without a tungsten bead and also with or without booby ends I find one of my favorite boobies is actually the mop booby and one of the reasons why it soaks up so much water that if you're fishing that wash of one especially if you're fishing a bank section you're not casting with the wind like you would lock stop and sometimes you need to wait on, out of that one floating fly to be able to kick your leader all the way over if you're just fishing a fab it's got no weight it's like a potato chip. <laughs> yeah, it ain't no wind. It just gets blown back at you, right? And so then the first three or four feet of your retreat is just taking up slack on that so that on the drop, you actually have tension and connection. So with that mop booby, you can get that to turn over all the way. And the fish really like mops. Uh, I don't know why. I'll never be able to tell you why. I also don't know why they like blobs, but they do. So yep. you should probably have some. And so blobs are another one. Once again, you can go out. Look at the different colors of blob chenille that are out there these days, and you will find any number of blob chenilles. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's overwhelming. Yes. <laughs> but for me, you know, a few basic pinks, oranges, maybe a biscuit or a coral, and then I usually like some two-tone pink and yellow or pink chartreuse and orange and yellow orange chartreuse. If you have some of those with 
or without phone or with and without phone so that you can fish them on a washing line. Those are important. And if, you know, I had to go through the rest of my box, there's various things like yeah. Dan Nibs, Calabasas, it's all the ones that I think most people be familiar with. But on the competition reaction style side of things, it's sort of those bugger variations, the mop, the boot, the the blobs. Those are the ones that I think might not get mixed in in your everyday neighbor's box as much as they'd probably see them yeah. in mine. But they should because those are great flies. And I full confession here, Devin, do I carry a lot of coronamid patterns? Yeah, I have a whole box full of them. Mm-hmm. And I probably have five, ten that I use consistently like you mentioned, right? They just got great faith in them and, and rely more on the presentation of those flies than the flies themselves. Absolutely. But, you know, you and I both like to tie, so, <laughs> and get probably these creative spurts at weird hours of the day and decide to act on them and see if they'll actually work. And they sit in your box for years and one day they'll get pulled into the game and actually perform. Yeah. Or one of the bad things for me, it's I'll go to some competition and my team things will be fishing some fly and they just did really well. Uh, it's all tied a bunch of them the tournament and they might actually work for the tournament. They might not. And then I try to oven and I just can't build safe in them. So they sit in the box for a while until they finally get cleaned up. So you have pretty different patterns that way. Yeah. Yeah. I always joke. And if you want to pick a fly that you're not sure, pick the one you have one of. There's one lone survivor in the box. That fly will kill, get destroyed, and you'll have a heck of a time trying to duplicate it. Or like you say, you'll tie a dozen and it'll go cold again. <laughs> it's almost like the fish sense you're in a bit of a, uh, a tight spot. So, um, no, this has been great. Um, you know, I think hopefully we've illustrated that a lot of the competition techniques um, you use in the competitive scene, the lock style, the the line choices, the leader setups, are, the flies, all very, very applicable to the everyday stillwater fly fisher who doesn't, you know, just doesn't compete. Um, they're very, very absolutely. applicable. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully listeners out there will give these uh, a try. Devin, how can they, uh, people... If they don't know you already, get in touch with you. Um, uh, where can they? You mentioned your online store, Tactical Fly Fisher, uh, Tactical Fly Fishing, rather. Um, you've got a website, uh, social media. How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so you got it right the first time, tacticalflyfisher.com. Uh, so if you go to that or just Google search it, you'll probably get it. And you go to the bottom of that site, there's both the phone number and uh, an email list of better. I probably answer more emails than I take calls. It's usually my shop manager that takes the call. So if you want to give me directly, the email is probably the best way to go. And then, uh, you know, on Instagram, the tactical flight the shoot as well. So folks can see uh, that and a lot of sort of recent highlights from outing there. Yeah. And of course, don't forget your YouTube channel because you've got some great still water content in addition to probably yep. the the river and stream stuff you're you're probably more recognized for yeah unfortunately there aren't as many still water viewers out there as there are river viewers at least for my yeah. channel but i would love to yep. see that change because it would inspire me to do more lake videos since i've done a, a few of them but uh but they often get lower views well maybe you and i should do some collaborative stuff maybe yeah, part I, one on your channel part two on mine or or something like that so we should talk fun. about that in the future and your new book you mentioned it you touched on it a little bit i'm uh, always glad to see more stillwater content in any way shape or form out there because it's always good to hear a different voice on the same topic um when can we expect that what's that going to look like <laughs> i wish i had a good answer for you on that so <laughs> uh, it's been turned in I was waiting for 
final revisions and like illustrations to get back. So hopefully sometime next year, it'll be out. What's the title? You know, the funny part, I handed it in about a month ago to, to editor, to, you know, to Jay, you know, and yeah. I actually don't remember what the title was. <laughs> I haven't looked yeah. at it since. Yeah. Uh, so it's similar to, to my book, my river book title. So it's something like uh, Stillwater Fishing, like uh, competitive angles for everyday fly fishing or something like that. I can't actually remember. Perfect. We sort of kicked off the launch of your book here today. That's great. Yeah, it, it's a similar vein of thought as to what you wanted. And basically take you, well, you know, for most people that don't know, my fisheries grad school research was done on a stillwater. So I, I have a bit of a limnology background. And so I take people through a, a fair bit of actual, you know, stillwater science, kind of like you did at the beginning of your book yep. uh, early on set up yeah. the things that will help them learn how to read a still water since that's often one of the biggest challenges. And then yep. I kind of take you straight into the fishing and talk about methods that we talked about today, all the rigs and everything else. And then the, the last chapter, couple chapters are case studies of me going out and actually fishing days on the water and explaining from beginning to end what I saw, what I did, what worked, what did it. And then, you know, uh, hopefully that helps. Well, good. I'll be definitely picking up a, a copy to add to my library because I'm glad you touched on the limnology because that's such an important part of, you know, where fish are and why in any given point in the day or the season. So and I think a lot of fly fishers just don't really pay the attention to that that they should because they end up fishing yep. water that is just at the certain times of the year is just not the right choice. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. that's why we love them. <laughs> All right, Devin. Well, I want to thank you once again. Um, we'll have a lot of what you talked about today, your contact information in the show notes. Probably I'll steal a couple of those fly recipes off you, maybe beg for a picture as to what they look like. It doesn't have to be award-winning. And uh, we can get there and do anything we can to help promote you. Well, the nice part is because I just rode the book, I have to take photos of all the flies. So that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I like to do not get in your way and let you uh, get on with your business and more importantly, get out on the water. And, and of course, we're not doing that, spend time with your family. So again, Devin, thanks so much for joining us today. I could have talked for, we've talked it over an hour and a half already, and I could probably still keep going. But yeah, we barely, we barely touched some surface on the, on the techniques. I know. Yeah. Well, we'll have to come back. We'll have you back and uh, talk more. Well, if people want to hear me drone out again, uh, we could probably do that. Oh yeah. Okay. All right, Devin, thanks so much, and uh, all the best. Thanks again for helping out. All right. Thanks, Phil. I want to thank Devin for taking the time to join me today. Hopefully, I didn't make him too late for picking up his kids from school. As you heard, Devin has a wealth of fly fishing information, particularly when it comes to stillwater fly fishing. Please make a point of dropping by his Tactical Fly Fisher online store and keep an eye out for his new stillwater book as soon as it becomes available. I'm looking forward to picking up my own copy. Please check out the show notes for links to Devon's store and website along with his YouTube channel. I've also included some images and pattern recipes for some of the patterns Devon mentioned in this episode. Until next time, I hope you can get out on one of your favorite lakes and give some of Devon's tactics and flies a try. That was Phil Roy on the Littoral Zone, part of the Wet Fly Swing Podcast and Swing Outdoors. Want to give Phil a big thank you and for putting this one together. Amazing. This has been a great chance for us to connect and dig a little bit deeper into Stillwater. If you have a question for the show on Stillwater for Phil, you can send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com or connect with Phil anytime at flycraftangling.com. 
and uh, social media, anything you do, we'd all be loving to hear from you if you get a chance. And uh, and this has been awesome. We are continuing to roll along. We're planning on doing these about one every month, all year long. Uh, so if you're loving this, uh, definitely let Phil know. We would love to hear from you right now. If you're listening and you enjoyed this, a little tweak on the normal thing we have. Uh, if you're loving the littoral zone, the best way to keep this going is to let Phil or I know that you're loving it. That's how we're going to do this potentially for another year. And uh, and if you have feedback either way, let us know and it would be amazing. Excited to see you on that next episode of This Littoral Zone.